Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Headstrong and Innings With. This series is entirely devoted to the sport of cricket, and I am talking to a number of cricketing individuals about their lives and their careers, but notably their vulnerabilities, to understand what the word headstrong means to them. This series, we are supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation. To make a donation, text 60191 using RSF10 to donate £10. This series is also sponsored by McGill and Partners and Ascot Group. Thank you for your continued support to this series. As I said, this series is entirely devoted to cricket, and we have had some incredible cricketers on, including Joss Butler, Jason Holder. Don Bess, and many more, so go check those other episodes out. If you are listening to this episode, you are tuning in to listen to me talk to Kate Cross. Kate is a wonderful cricketer, but has had her own fair share of experiences with mental health. We go into detail about her life, including her experiences within the England dressing room and on the fringes of the sport. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Kate, thank you so much for joining me on Headstrong. How are you? Um, I'm actually really well, thank you. Thanks for asking. How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. In fact, I recently recorded a podcast with somebody who's actually going to be on my next series, but she came up with this amazing initiative where in the first lockdown out in the States, she just invited all of her best friends to do this kind of campaign to ask, how are you feeling? And it was really interesting. And so today, how are you feeling? That's funny, isn't it? It's such a different question. It poses like such a different answer, but I'm actually quite tired today. I've been quite tired for the last couple of weeks, actually. So yeah, feeling quite drained, but generally good. I'm in a good place. I mean, we're speaking early into the season, early into the summer. How are you feeling about that then as well? Is it Has it come from cricket? I mean, I, I can imagine the start of the season is exhausting anyway I mean the whole thing is exhausting but (laughs) yeah it's funny now we don't really have a start of the season anymore you know we we obviously do follow the sun we're quite princessy when it comes to cricket and we play in the sunshine and as soon as it rains we obviously get indoors but yeah generally the start of the season should be the most I guess fresh that we feel but now because we train so often and we play so often which is brilliant by the way it's not you know that's not a criticism whatsoever um you're constantly kind of chasing your tail and trying to find gaps in your schedule. So I think as we become more professional and our schedules get busier, generally we need to get a bit better at finding those little gaps where we're able to get away from the game. Um, And we're actually just coming off um, probably about a six-week fitness block. 
because we've had the opportunity to get together as a squad. There's been no away tours, no big bashes or women's IPL for people to be spread across the globe. So we've actually come together as a team for six weeks. Again, quite unique. So um, it's been tiring, it's been hard, but I think we're just looking forward to getting to actually play some cricket now. If the sun comes out, which it's not doing yet. I know. I feel like April really kind of gave us the sun and there was no cricket. <laughs> Absolutely not. But it does make me like realise how great we had it last year when we were in that lockdown and the sun just seemed to shine every single day. I think it's just made me appreciate how bad that could have been had we not had that good weather. Mm, definitely. Now, I think the best way for me to navigate this is I'm going to just go as chronological as I can in terms of life and career. So we will come on to COVID lockdown, summer cricket and all that, but there's, I just want to just go through everything chronologically, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, of course. Go for it. Because I mean, first things first, you were born into a sporting family, which is something that is worth noting. Your, your dad being a footballer and a coach, did you feel pressures on you as a child to get into sport or was it just part of the household and just what you knew? Yeah, literally never under any pressure to play sport. It was just there. It was always there. Um, don't get me wrong. Like I tried to play musical instruments, tried to play the guitar for like a year. Couldn't do it. Not musically gifted whatsoever. But um, yeah, sport was just something that I kind of grew up with and it was, um, I guess, just something that, well, I'm, I'm the youngest of three, which paints a picture in itself because obviously the littlest in the family just gets dragged around and gets told to bowl or go in net or, you know, stand there and be a goalpost, whatever it is. So I was that kid in my family. Um, So in some respects, I feel like I was really lucky that I had an older brother and older sister that kind of guided me into sport. Um, I don't know why I say that, like there's a book. um, (laughs) It shaped my life. You know, cricket has given me my career. It's given me um, it's given me everything that I've got to this day. So I'm I'm very grateful to have an older brother that, that really pushed me into cricket. But when I say pushed, I don't mean that that was forced upon me. I loved it. You know, it was my hobby. I was the kid that was, well, I was the only girl really down at my cricket club as a youngster, as like a 10, 11 year old. Uh, I was always running around with the lads, getting messy, playing cricket, playing football, whatever it might have been. So um, as much as I got pushed into it in the sense that I was the youngest, I also thrived on it and loved playing it. So when did you know then as a child that cricket was just your sport? Because you talk about there of just getting stuck in and doing everything. When did you know that your passion lay in cricket? Probably not until I was mid-teens, maybe around 14 or 15. And that was probably because I got an opportunity to um, go into the Lancashire Academy and I was the first girl to to get accepted onto that academy, which was a really big thing at the time. And I didn't kind of realise the enormity of it. Um, but that was at the point that I had to choose between netball and cricket. I love playing netball as well. And, you know, I was the kid at school that played every sport, was trying to get into all the teams, like annoyingly wanted to be involved in everything. Um, but yeah, it was probably around 15 where I had to kind of think about taking cricket more seriously. Um but yeah, it's funny you talk about it as a passion because I've never thought of it like that. I've always just seen it as a part of my life. And I think that was probably from being involved in it so young. Um, like I talk about my older brother. He played in the first team when he was like young as well. But when I was then 10, he was playing first team cricket. So on a Saturday and a Sunday, we were all packed up in the car for the day. We'd go down to Haywood, which was my club. And, you know, my mum and dad would say, as long as you don't leave the gates, you're absolutely fine to go and do what you want to do today. So like my entire weekend then was being at the cricket club. So it was, I think it's just like been ingrained in me from such a young age, which I think if you talk to anyone that plays cricket, that happens a lot. It's kind of like a real community, a real family Mm. feel around the cricket club. So um, yeah, I guess that's another thing that I count myself really lucky for that. I've got so many people that I kind of grew up with who were my babysitters, basically, you know, they just looked after me for the weekend. So it was great for my mum and dad as well. They could sit and have a drink watching the cricket. (laughs) I bet they were appreciative of that. I mean, that's something I would definitely agree on as well, though, the the word community, particularly because, you know, I've recently moved to a new area and I haven't played cricket in like five years. But 
I was just like, who, what am I going to do? I'm going to join the cricket club. And, you know, the first net I went to, I was obviously a bit nervous meeting new people, whatever. But it's now just a massive community. And, you know, it's amazing. Even despite the COVID situation, cricket is going ahead. You know, yeah. there's still allowed to be outdoor beers after the game and a good atmosphere, really welcoming. And, you know, there's group chats going on and there's, there's fun, yeah. there's banter. But there's also a really supportive atmosphere. And I think yeah. that's what it really has captured specifically in England about cricket at every that, level as well. Yeah, I think that's exactly like it captures you because and I think there's probably an element of the length of the game as well. It's not just a 90 minutes, you know, you go in the dressing room, you get changed, you play, you leave. There's so much like walking around the ground when you're batting, you talk to everyone as you go around. Like it is just that sense of, you know, you're here for the day. It's it's an event. It's not a match. It's kind of an event of what you're all up to and everyone I know from my experience, everyone at Haywood loved a Saturday when the sun was shining and you'd go and stand on the patio and have a drink. And, you know, it's just, it was just a really lovely kind of childhood that I grew up in. And I think that's why I've always kind of pushed people to want to be involved in cricket because I know the opportunities that it gave to me. And I'd love people to feel those as well. Definitely. But with your cricket then, was there much in terms of infrastructure at school uh, or was it actually all outside and all club driven? Yeah, I went to an all-girls school, so there was no cricket for me. It was rounders, hockey or netball or swimming. Um, so, yeah, it was just purely the fact that I had an older brother, dad that played, uncle that was the under-11s coach that then probably made it a little bit more comfortable for me to go and play in a boys' team because I had the familiarity of my uncle being there. Um, but, yeah, I think once I got past that initial stage of kind of going down and being the only girl, it then became second nature that, you know, cricket was just something that I loved. It wasn't, there was never in my childhood, I never took a step back because I was a girl, which I, again, I, in hindsight, find I'm mean, really lucky about, you know, that's a really lucky thing that I was welcomed into a cricket club and people saw the fact that I had a bit of talent and they never saw the fact that I was a girl. And that was, thinking back now, again, with hindsight, it was such a driving force for me to be able to carry on doing what I'm doing, again, be sat here today as a professional cricketer. That's really interesting as well, because you know what, Sarah said exactly the same. And it's such a, like, that. I think that also says something again, I hope, about the sport um, in terms of its inclusivity. I mean, obviously, I'm sure that you do have particular stories, you know, of, I don't know, opposition or something or, you know, I mean, whether you call it sledging or literally you're going further, further to the kind of, you know, further afield from that. I don't know. But I mean, I don't really want to talk about that part of it. But you were talking about being the first women to be accepted into the Lancashire Cricket Academy, which is, you know, when you hear it back, astounding. But what how do you reflect on that today? and realise what that means to you today? It is the reason that I'm sat here today, because if that hadn't have happened, I mean, obviously you don't know, you can't, you've not got a crystal ball, you don't know what might have happened if I'd not been selected. But I guess what I was doing at the time, and I didn't realise it, was that I was kind of like pushing down doors. And again, I like massively stressed. I wasn't out playing cricket to do that. I was out playing cricket because I loved the sport. And I was just, I felt like these opportunities were just amazing and being in the academy meant I got the opportunity to train three more times a week and go and do what I loved three more times a week. Um, but now looking back, it like, like I said, it is the reason that I'm sat here today because it made me choose cricket. It made me solely concentrate on the fact that I might play cricket for England. And I'd never thought about that before. I didn't even know the girls had a cricket team. You know, I was that naive and that, that, that visibility wasn't there for the women at the time. So I just didn't know that it was a thing. And it certainly wasn't a career at that point. You know, it's still my hobby. It was still just something that I'd set a goal and was going to try and achieve that. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, is, it was an enormous part. It's probably like the real pinnacle. And I always talk about John Stanworth, who was the director at the time of the Lancashire Academy, who selected me. And he always spoke in the media about how I'd been picked on merit. And I wasn't picked because they needed to have a girl in there. There was no kind of quota system or anything. Um, and that, I think, gave me some confidence as well to think that someone has done something groundbreaking here and they've, you know, they've changed things. And that then ultimately meant that the next girl that came in, it wasn't going to be as big a deal. And now I look at the way that the Lancashire, Lancashire system is and there's a, a girls academy, there's a girls emerging players program. And, you know, those opportunities just weren't there for me when I was a kid. So I just think 
how brilliant that is for a young girl now to see an actual pathway through to potentially elite sport. Are you aware of the catalyst that you were then for the club? Because it's actually, that is for, probably from you, that stemmed from you. And indeed, as you say, how far the game has progressed, even in the last 20 years. No, I don't think, I don't, I don't think of things like that. I don't, I, I, th- I find it really funny when people like call us role models. I think that, you know, I'm still a girl that's just playing a sport that she's loved all of her life. Like I hate it sometimes, don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't think I've ever done it for those reasons. And I think subsequently I've probably um, created more opportunities maybe for the next generation, but I've kind of done that by mistake. <laughs> if that makes sense. No, sure. I understand where you're coming from. But with, with huge success from cricket comes the, the opportunities that come with travelling with the cricket as well. Now, that's something that I'm interested in talking about. What is that travelling atmosphere like? Because you do go away for periods of time. I mean, how do you prepare for a tour, both you know, in terms of your cricket, but then you know, your family can't come with you, and especially all your family come with you. How do you prepare mentally as well? Yeah, that's something actually that I've probably found more difficult as I've got a lot, a little bit older. And I think that's probably from knowing how important my family are in terms of my support bubble. Um, and I think COVID's kind of created that a bit more for me as well, knowing how important your family and your friends are. Because I think before COVID, we just took them for granted because you could go and see them every Saturday or whatever it is. Um, but when I was a youngster, I just remembered like going on tour was the most exciting thing. You know, you get a free holiday, basically. There was hard work that went involved, like, was involved in it as well. But, you know, you're going to see these places in the world that you probably never get to go to. You know, I would never have gone to Bangladesh, probably wouldn't go to India or places like that. But cricket has given me those opportunities. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's a real toss up between making sure that you enjoy the culture, you enjoy the environment, you enjoy you know, the fact that you are traveling. But now when we go away as a team, we have a job to do. We are there to play cricket. It's not, it isn't a holiday. It's, you can enjoy those bits, you know, like you would if you were in England. Is there a somewhere, is it, are there different tours where it's easier for you to go on tour, as you say, to enjoy, because you enjoy the culture more or because you're, I don't know, the time difference is better. Is there a different, Yeah, and that probably makes you enjoy your cricket more as well, I imagine. Yeah, of course. There's, I mean, like Australia is an incredible place to tour. And it's. I think for me, the countries that are really similar to England, I find the easiest because the culture's similar. Mm-hmm. Um, places like India, kind of in the, in like the Asian continents, then they're Asian continents. There's one Asian continent. They're <laughs> countries. They're, um, sometimes security can, can be a lot tighter with places like that. So you might be a bit restricted with where you can go or how many people need to be in a group when you travel. So that sometimes adds to a bit of stress, but I think we're probably just a bit more used to those countries as well now, because we've been lucky enough to go and visit them. Um, But I'd say where every country has got a pro, it's also got a con, but equally every country that's got a con has got a pro as well. Like India is just such an incredible place to go to, like the people and how they think of cricket and, you know, Mm. it's like their religion and you go and they, they think you're pretty much the queen because you play cricket and it's amazing that you could get treated like that because of sport. Um, so yeah, each, each place has got its own kind of special like part of it that we all love, but touring can be really difficult sometimes. Like you said, you're away from your family so much, the time difference as well. I think people don't kind of think about that sometimes, but India is a really tricky one for that actually, because like the five hours makes it quite, tough whereas australia you completely flipped and it's 12 hours so you've got morning and night where you can talk to people mm, definitely that's that's seriously tricky i think staying in touch is now probably as you've probably learned throughout your career far more important yeah and just making sure communication is key and i think with technology as well that's made it so much easier because um i remember my brother went to australia for three winters and he played for a club team over there and i had to write him letters it was that long ago, you know, I was a 10 year old and I would like every two weeks I'd wait for the postman so that I could get a letter off my brother. And now I literally pick my phone up and I can see my dad in his living room or I can see my nieces running around in their garden because of FaceTime. So that has massively helped this generation of cricketers, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, of course, in any cricketing career, there is always that intrinsic fear, but also just natural kind of how teams and cricket professional teams are of being left out of the squad or being 12th man and whatnot. Of course, you are there as a professional sportsman to be, have that desire to play. 
how do you deal as a professional sports person not being picked and how difficult is it to see your kind of your friends but also your colleagues kind of playing but you're you're like you're nearly there what's that feeling like it's really difficult actually and I think um I don't think it's anything that gets easier um you know it's it's something that you probably experience more and you understand those emotions more um but you never like I never get over the not being selected because you almost feel like you rode something which obviously is not the case that's how professional sport works but you think you know I've worked really hard for eight weeks why am I not playing you know I've worked as hard as everyone else you know why is why does that why am I not like being picked and being able to go out there and showcase that and um like the world cup in 2017 was a perfect example of that for me because I I've openly said this to the girls and I hate myself for it but I went up and down that day so I was like a yo-yo all day and I was you know like I, I don't want them to win of course I want them to win my best friends are playing on that pitch and they're playing in front of 25,000 people at Lords of course I want them to win it'll be amazing for women's cricket if they win and then I'd flip back to no I'm not involved I'd, I don't want to see them lift that trophy because I've not been there and I'm not part of that team and yeah the, it was just such an emotionally draining day for me because I had that you know complete yo-yo all the time um so yeah I'm, I'm not giving any advice here I'm kind of just saying how difficult it is but I think like when you sign up for professional sport that's part of it you know you realize that you don't get the career that you might have written down as like your fairy tale career some people do don't get me wrong you know that sometimes does happen for people and that's actually something that I'm battling at the minute is I've not had the career that I thought I would have I thought by the time I got to 29 that I'd be cemented in the England team and I'd you know we've taken X amount of wickets and played X amount of games and it's just not happened that way. And I had a real, like a, a proper meltdown about it when we were in New Zealand in February, just gone. And um, I wasn't selected for the first game and I, I really had to take a step back and kind of say, do I, do I, do I really want to carry on doing this? Do I really want to put my body through this? Do I really want to put my head through this? Because it is mentally draining. And then I wasn't getting the rewards of being able to go out and represent my country and I had to really remind myself that I'm in such a unique position that the 15 girls that had travelled to New Zealand were the best 15 girls in the country at cricket at the time. And you, you, I feel like you really lose sight of that because we train day in, day out for England. So your England career becomes everything. Whereas I feel like that's where maybe the women's game hasn't developed like the men's game has at the minute you know the men play for their counties a lot more and they you know dip in and out of the t20 blast or they go over to the big bash and there's a lot more opportunity to play cricket whereas for us it's like England or England basically it's getting better now because we've got the regional hubs and the hundred etc but I think I just put so much pressure on myself that if I'm not playing for England that must mean I'm no good at cricket and my dad rings me all the time he's like Kate you represent you're over with England you know you're in the squad be really happy about that and of course, I'm happy about that. But I also want to be out there playing and representing and winning games for England. That's the catch-22, though, of a professional sports person, probably. Because, you know, the fact that you've been picked for England, anyone would be proud of that. But then the fact that you haven't been picked to be in the starting 11, you'd beat yourself up about it. Exactly, yeah. And it, it, again, it's just that I think it, you battle with yourself more than anyone because you think you've failed because you're not playing in that starting 11. And there's literally only 11 girls that can go out on that pitch. And it's, I mean, it's so easy to say it now when we're not in competition. You know, if you, if we were playing a game tomorrow and I wasn't picked, I'd probably be sat here crying to you. But um, I think it just also goes to show how much we put into it and how much hard work and kind of dedication and sacrifice. You know, I've sacrificed a lot in my 28 years. I've missed out on stuff with my friends and my family. And um, like my, my niece, when she turned four, I'd seen one Christmas with her. So, you know, you, you know, you just miss all out out on stuff like that that yeah it's great you go in traveling the world and seeing these places but there's also a real human life that you kind of don't see a lot of which I think social media brings a bit more to now because there is more access to athletes like that but yeah it, can, it just can be difficult but like you said that's what you sign up to with the professional sport well that, I suppose that this next question then is that's got a different angle this has got a different angle to it because the question I was going to ask is kind of being left out of a squad say there are 15 on tour and the 11 are picked do you feel isolated from the playing 11 during that game but then in the same breath do you feel isolated because you are also on tour and you're away from all these experiences that you feel like you could be missing out on 
Um, I'd say you'd never feel isolated um, because I think we've got a very good group of girls. You know, we've mm. got we've got a lot of girls who've probably been in and out of the squads and in and out of the team. So they understand that running the drinks is the worst job in the world, but someone's got to do it. And we actually really pride ourselves on doing that job well as well, because I, like, I always think to myself, if I was playing and it was a red hot day and you're in Perth and you needed someone to be there to make sure you're hydrated and, and fueled, et cetera, what, how would you want that person to act to you? So I always try and think of it that way that I've actually still got a job to do that day. Mm. Well, you're probably the most important person that day. Well, I genuinely think the test match that I played when I made my debut in 20, God, 2014 now, I genuinely think we won that test match because of our 12th, 13th, 14th and 15th because they, it was like 50-odd degrees for four days and we wouldn't have coped without them there. And it sounds patronising when you thank the drinks people, but it is a, it's a thankless job. And like you said, someone's got to do it and you need those people to do it. So I just try and think, as cliche as it is, just do the best job that you can that day for the girls there because they would do the same for you. This series is brought to you by two magnificent sponsors, Ascot Group and McGill and Partners. Ascot Group is a global speciality insurance and reinsurance group with a record of underwriting excellence and superior claims service. Founded in 2001, the company provides a broad range of property and casualty solutions to customers worldwide through its platforms in London, Bermuda and the United States. Ascot is a long-standing supporter of charities with a link to sport, including ongoing sponsorship of the Great Britain Wheelchair Rugby Club. With a recent increase in mental health awareness, the company is particularly proud to support Headstrong Season 5 and Innings With, which focuses on the psychological well-being challenges that arise from professional sports. McGill & Partners is a boutique insurance broker, helping corporate clients find specialist solutions for their most challenging and complex risks. Growing rapidly since its launch in 2019, the company operates in the UK, Europe and the United States and prides itself on working with some of the biggest companies in the world. And you can find out more on their website, mcgillpartners.com. McGill and Partners understands high performance and the mental health challenges that can be associated with it, regardless of the industry people are working in. The company is fully committed to their employees' well-being and are delighted to be sponsoring the Headstrong podcast series. It is also delighted to support the Ruth Strauss Foundation. Thank you to these two wonderful sponsors. Now, this podcast is rooted in mental health. And I obviously, I mean, as, as we said before we started recording, you have obviously talked about, talked about your own experiences beforehand plenty. But I'm, I want to kind of talk about it a little bit um, myself because, I mean, some listeners will, will, will never have heard from you before, which is exciting. And so they, 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 I think, deserve to hear your experiences and your story because every story is unique. Yeah. Um, and this, I mean, I don't know for you, when did you first become self-aware of the fact that you were in tune with your own mental health? And I don't want to say what ha had difficulties as such, but when were you first aware that you were like, hang on, something might not be quite right? <clears throat> um, it was my second slash third year of university. So I was, what, 20, 21. Um, and I remember being sat in a lecture theatre studying psychology, talking about depression. And I remember looking at all the symptoms of depression and I could tick off like 10 of them. And I just thought, wow, I've needed a textbook to tell me what I'm going through. And I, I remember going home that weekend. Um, it must have been near the cricket season because I think we were going watching my brother play. And I remember driving in the car with my mum and I said, mum, I need to talk to you about something, but kind of regurgitated that story and said, I feel like I'm, I've got these symptoms. I think I'm struggling with depression. And she said that she was going to talk to me about it that day as well, because she'd noticed that I've not been myself. You know, I was quite withdrawn. Um, I'm kind of generally a, an extroverted person, like life and soul. In a dressing room, I'm generally the joker. So when I'm not up and about, everyone knows, and it's quite obvious. And people used to kind of not give me grief about it, but it kind of was like my... Um, What's the right word? It was, the, it was the thing that people said to me was like my downfall. That, oh, when you're up, you're brilliant. You drag people with you. But equally, when you're down, you drag people down as well. 
and I never understood this. I just thought it was me just kind of being a bit of a miserable northerner and, you know, not being able to have energy all the time. And then the more I started to understand mental health, the more I realized that every time I went into that dressing room, I was putting on a face, you know, I was turning up with a smile on, making sure the music was loud. It was, it was just constantly trying to make sure I was up all the time. So people didn't ask me what was wrong or how I was feeling like you did at the start. Um, so yeah, that was probably the first real, like how long I'd been experiencing that. I'm not too sure. I can't really remember, but I definitely remember that conversation with my mum in the car. And that was when I went to my GP for the first time and kind of really started to look into my mental health. So from a cricketing perspective then, can we, can we kind of maybe explore those emotions of, of that ODI against Pakistan in 2016 then? Because your family were watching and you were kind of experiencing something yourself. Yeah, um, all of it becomes a bit of a blur to me. Like the timelines, I, I can't quite work it all out. I know I definitely had a lot of ups and downs from that being that 20-year-old because Pakistan, I think, was when I was around 24, 25. So there's four years there of you know battling and not quite getting it right and not probably getting the right help as well. Um, but yeah, I remember that series, everyone was absolutely dominating in the England team. You know, Lauren was scoring hundreds, Tammy was scoring hundreds, Nat was taking the mick with how many sixes she'd hit. All our bowlers were taking wickets. And I remember not even being able to kind of go under sixes in like my economy. And I remember being down at fine leg, and I spoke about this quite openly, but I remember having that lump in my throat and I had my sunglasses on. It was quite an overcast day as well. But I had my sunglasses on so that if I cried, no one would see because it was on a you know, it was a Sky televised game. So I didn't want anyone to see that I was crying or potentially could cry. And we have, um, we had family days with Mark Robinson. So he would have a day where he put on like a buffet and all our family members were able to go and enjoy the occasion of us all playing for cricket. It was nice for the parents as well, because they got looked after. And it was the first game of my England career that my brother, my sister, my mum and my dad had all got to on the same day. And so I remember thinking to like, thinking to myself at the start of the day I need to have a good day you know if I take five for today it'll be amazing it'll be the perfect day and then I'm down at finally crying my eyes out thinking how have I got here I'm not good enough to be here everyone's dominating and I'm just literally treading water um so that was that was the start of where my first real major mental breakdown came so that was the back end of one summer and we were going over to the West Indies and I think there was a back-to-back tour with Sri Lanka on the back of that and I remember getting, in, I've probably fast forwarded here. I might've taken a few questions away from you, but I remember I was picking Sophie Eccleston up. She was too young to drive. Um, so I was picking her up en route to come down to Loughborough. And I woke up absolutely bawling my eyes out, sat in the kitchen eating my Weetabix with just tears streaming out of my face. And my dad came into the kitchen and he was like, what has happened? You know, what, something tragic must've happened for you to be how, what was going on? And I just said, I can't go to Loughborough. I, the thought of getting in my car and driving to Loughborough makes me feel like this. And it was just so much anxiety, so much stuff that built up and I didn't know how to control. And I remember I got in my car. I somehow got changed, got in my car because I was picking Sophie up. That was the only reason that I got in my car that day. And my dad stood in front of my car and he said, you can't drive. Like I literally like puffy eyes. Imagine someone at their absolute worst. That was, you know, that was me trying to drive a car. And um, he stood in front of my car and he's like, you can't drive like this. And I nearly knocked him over because I was just so adamant that I was going to get down to Loughborough and I was going to, you know, just achieve picking Sophie up and getting her down there. Um, And then on the back of that, when I finally did get down there, I spoke to the physio and I just said, I can't do this anymore. I need to leave. I need to get out. And I sat down with our head coach and I just said, you know, I tried to explain what I was going through and I, I couldn't really work it out in my own head to try and explain to him. And he just said to me, he said, look, get away. He said, go on holiday. I'm not going to select you for the West Indies tour. He said, you've got however many days, just, you know, book a flight and go and get some time to yourself and we'll work this out. Um, And that was, it was such a difficult time for me because I knew if I had that conversation with the head coach, I knew that I'd potentially jeopardise my spot in the one day team, which would eventually be the World Cup team that went on to win it in 2017. So it was, yeah, it was a real difficult time because I knew that I wasn't okay in myself, but I knew that if I took a break from it, it could harm my career as well. So it was, it was yeah, it was such a difficult one. 
How important was it, though, for you to take a break in cricket? Because it's so important to understand that cricket is merely just a game and it is just a sport and it's not the be-all and end-all and definition of one's life. That's what I couldn't get my head around at the time because everything that you said then was how I felt about cricket. It felt like the be-all and end-all. It felt like if I didn't go on a tour, then I wasn't going to get my contract renewed. If I didn't get my contract renewed, I couldn't be a professional cricketer. So I wouldn't earn any money to, you know, pay... I didn't have a mortgage at the time, so, but, you know, I wouldn't have any money to do anything. I'd need to go get a job. So I kind of like catastrophized all that stuff in my own head. And the first conversation that I had with our psych when I first started working with him, he said to me, he said, who, who are you? He said, are you Kate Cross the cricketer? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I am. Because, you know, that's how my mates see me. That's what my mates, every time my mates talk to me, they ask me about cricket because that's what people know me as. He's like, right, this is where we're going to start. He said, you are not Kate Cross, the cricketer. You are Kate Cross, who happens to be good at cricket. And I think that balance that I had, and a lot of it came from my hobby becoming my job overnight. You know, I couldn't work that perfectionism that I've, you know, I've spoken about in many interviews, but I, a perfectionism crept into my game that was so unobtainable that Again, every time I turned up to training, I thought I was failing because I wasn't hitting six out of six balls or, you know, being able to deliver X, Y, or Z. I thought that I was failing. So that was, you know, it was just so much stuff that built up and built up and built up. And I didn't have the coping mechanisms to overcome what I was thinking or even change how I was thinking that it then just kind of erupted in that day of trying to drive down to Loughborough. During that break from cricket then and specifically that time did you ever imagine giving up altogether yeah and what was your thought process behind that were you because I know the feelings and emotions that you would have probably gone through in a far lesser extent and and not on such a big platform as to what you were giving up but you know the doubt comes in and you were probably thinking about a whole different life that you could try and live that would try and live up to something else I don't know that um the night that I got home from Loughborough well, actually, I had three very, very bad days. I had three days of not being able to get out of bed. Um, you know, I couldn't stimulate myself whatsoever. And I was just, I was in such a dark place. But I remember getting on my laptop and looking at jobs that were going because I just thought, you know, I can't keep putting myself through this. And there's something not right. And I thought it was cricket that made me feel like that. And it wasn't. It was my thought processes around cricket and mm. everything that kind of comes with being a professional sports person. Um but yeah, I I've, I, mean, I reckon I've retired from cricket about 15 times in my own head. And I reckon the next day I'm like, have a word with yourself, get out of bed, go and do a run, do something that makes you feel better and then reassess. Because the second you start making decisions when you're in a bad place or you're emotional is when it doesn't go well for you. And I've, again, that's something that I've had to learn that that's a coping mechanism. Because I, I try and fix things. I see if there's a problem. I think, right, if I do this, this and this, I'll be fixed or that will be fixed. And you just can't do that with mental health. It's such, it's such a long game and like a cliche cricket, I know, but um, it's like, you've got to put a lot of time and hard work into it. It's like anything. It's like being in the gym. It's like learning how to bowl a ball. You've got to put time into it. What are your techniques then now to stay on top of your own mental health? And how do you, for example, like I did do at the beginning of the podcast, how do you keep in check with yourself? Um, my biggest one is exercise, which sometimes is really difficult because I'm, I literally exercise for a living. And I found, I remember I went through a phase where I was, I found it really difficult that all my exercises was was prescribed for me, but I think we've got Mm. such a better understanding of, well, the, the, the relationship I've got with our S and C now is absolutely outstanding. Like I can turn up and say to him, Ian, I know you've set this run, which is, eight 30 seconds on 30 seconds off but I just need to go and do a run I need to go and do a four or five k and I just need to get my headphones on and go and he says you know what and like he trusts me basically he trusts that I'm going to do the right things so having that relationship with him was so important um so yeah exercise my number one like I can't tell you how many panic runs I've been on where it's been like 10 o'clock at night and I've had to put my running gear on and just go out 10-15 minutes just to kind of calm myself down um when I'm this is bad, but when I'm bad, when I'm not in a good place, I meditate a lot. And then as soon as I start feeling a bit better, I kind of like, oh, I don't need to meditate today. And I kind of get out of the good habits, which is not something that I would advise. Like when you've got your good habits, keep them, try and keep them as long as you can. Um, yeah, so like, that's, like, that's like exercise as well. <laughs> For yeah, a lot of people, you know. 
Absolutely, yeah. It's 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 easy when it's when you're in a good place. It's so easy, but when you're not in a good place, it. I just always say to myself, when I'm not in a good place, what is the one thing that I know will make me feel better now? And it more often than not, it is exercise or it's dragging myself out to go and see people. And it's the last thing that you want to do. It's always the last thing you want to do, but you've just really got to force yourself to do it. And it's hard, but you've just got to know that and trust the process that that will help make you feel a little bit better. And it's not going to happen overnight, but you've just got to kind of keep chipping away at it. Um, But my other one is just talking. And that's why I'm so selfishly talking about mental health for me is a real positive thing because it allows me to just even talk about this my story again it just allows me to almost remember what I've gone through and how I've got to where I am today and I'm don't get me wrong I'm not perfect with it now I still have my ups and downs and um you know I'm still learning about mental health still which you know you think you've been going through it for nearly 10 years you think you'd understand it more but it I think it's just it changes so much and each kind of phase that I go through is very difficult that is very different sorry than the last one that I went to went through so yeah I think being able to talk about it is really important and whether that's with strangers like you on podcasts or that's with family members or friends or whoever it might be well we talk you've talked about as well the likes of Mark Robinson of speaking to Sarah Taylor and your family as well how important is that unity in the dressing room for support then Oh, it's so, so massive. I can't even tell you. So that day that I really, you know, couldn't get down to Loughborough and only got down because I was driving south, I couldn't face the girls. I couldn't let them see me how I was. You know, I didn't, if anyone saw me crying, I thought, God, it's just going to be like attention, attention seeking and everyone's going, oh, what's wrong? What's happened? I'm going to have to try and explain this. And I couldn't explain it. Whereas now, like after the Derbyshire bubble is a really good example, but we came back into training. A lot of the girls were over with the big bash so it was um, probably about eight or ten of us in Loughborough every week and we had a whatsapp group and I just said girls I'm not at my best at the minute don't worry about me I don't need anyone to do anything different just keep me busy you know if you see me a little bit upset it's okay I'm just I'm just going through some stuff I'm working through some stuff and I can be so open with them and it I think almost puts them at ease as well because then they're not treading on eggshells around me and thinking oh god what's happened at home or you know has the dog died what what is it that I think just being able to be open with your teammates is so important for them to be able to help you as well which is just so massive because we spend so much time together as a squad and in a similar breath as well another squad of yours that you're incredibly passionate about is your own family and you know they're your as you now talk about even more so post post lockdown and post covid well during COVID, how important that support network is of your family. How important is it, was it for you at that time then to have them involved in your process? Because I know that your parents sat in with the psychologist. So how important was that for you? But also kind of, I can only imagine the weight on their shoulders of having to, you know, because it's the daughter that they love more than anything and they want everything for yeah. So that was an it must have been an interesting kind of pathway for you all. Yeah, I I actually went through a phase of keeping them in the dark about my mental health because I for that exact reason I didn't want them to worry about me. I didn't want them to think of me at university and you know in my lectures or in my house being sad or worried about me. So I, I kind of kept them out of it and I realized that that was the worst thing to do because then I'd be sat there going, "Well, why is my mum not with me today?" you know, does she she not love me or she not bothered about me. And actually she just doesn't know. I've just not given her the privilege of knowing what's actually going on in my life. Um, but yeah, they became massive. And those conversations that you just spoke about then about them being in the psychologist chat with me, like oh, they were awful. They were absolutely, I dreaded, I knew that they'd be awful and I dreaded them because of that. And there was just this one chat that really vividly sticks out to me. And it was around how I had to be really open about the fact that I needed to be perfect in front of them because like that family day that I spoke about, at, uh, yeah, it was at Worcester against Pakistan, how I felt like I needed to perform because they were there. And my dad like laughed and he said, Kate, you're playing for England. Why on earth would we care how many wickets you've taken that day? You know, we got to be there as a family to support you. And just hearing him say those words, like we're not, we're not a lovey-dovey, like we don't text each other family that, you know, like I love you. And we're, we're not like that. We support each other, but we support each other with, kind of actions more than more than anything so for him to say something like that to me I'd never heard it before and he when I got into the Lancashire Academy he kind of did a lot of interviews as well because 
David Crossy's daughter had been selected for Lancashire Academy. And I remember he always used to answer the question of, you must be so proud of her with, he, said, he always used to say, I'm not proud, I'm pleased because I see how much hard work she does. So every time I heard that question, I always kind of, it kind of got shut down and it wasn't, oh my God, I'm so proud of her. It was always a, I've seen how hard she's worked. So I'm really pleased she's getting what she does, like, you know, what she deserves. Um, so to have those conversations was so massive for me. And it was, um, you know, we all kind of sat there crying and it was, it was, a, yeah, it was just not nice. Um, but ultimately it was what's brought us together more as a family. Cause now my dad rings me every single day. Yeah. You know, it was a therapeutic, um, experience regardless of how you were feeling at the time because it was one that needed to happen yeah absolutely like my dad came from an era of football where if you got injured some guy ran on the pitch with a bucket and some water and like it was the magic sponge that just fixed everything you know you just put ice on any injury there was no oh are you okay you know how are you feeling mentally there was none of that when he was playing football so it was a real I think game changer for him as well to kind of talk about his emotions and talk about what it meant for him to see me play for England and stuff like that. But yeah, like I said, he knows that like now we're down in Loughborough four nights a week. I'm sat in a hotel room now. He rings me every night just to check how I am because he knows that I'm away from my support bubble. So it's completely changed our dynamic as a family as well, because I think we are a lot more open now about being okay to talk about bad days or bad phases or whatever it is. And like, let's be honest, you're going to run back to your mum and dad after the derby bubble it was I turned 29 on the 3rd of October I think we got out of the bubble on the 1st and I thought oh, thank you know thankfully I'm gonna have some time with my family I had a lovely day with them got home to my flat and I broke down so on my 29th birthday I've rung my mum in tears and said I need to come back to your house I'm gonna come and stay at yours and I'm sat in the kitchen crying on my mum's shoulder on my birthday having had the best day with my family who I'd not seen for six weeks so like that, I think it just goes to show the power of mental health and how it literally can get anyone at any time. It just, it just doesn't, you know, there's no, no rhyme or reason for how I was feeling that day other than it just was a bad day. No, you're completely right. Something that I did want to talk to you about as well is, and I, I hope you don't mind if I, if I do talk about it, because I know that you have previously mentioned the fact that you are described in certain interviews as being the daughter of somebody else, as opposed to I am Kate Cross, some, you know, an independent person without having to be described through a different narrative, you know, having a father who is a professional sportsman. Did that put extra pressures on you unnecessarily? And indeed, did you put them on yourself because of that? Interestingly, this is, um, this was something that again came out in all my psych stuff. So I didn't know that any of this was going on. So this, as a kid growing up, you know, I was always David Cross's daughter or when I went and played cricket and my brother Bobby was in the first team and he was a very good batter. Everyone knew me as Bobby's little sister, you know, so I was always someone's sister or someone's daughter. And I think the stuff that we managed to unpick me and my psych was how without knowing it at the time, I was someone without being someone because I was, even just running around a cricket ground, everyone would be like, oh, that's David Cross's daughter or Bobby's sister. So I think subconsciously, I think it made me want to prove people wrong. And I think a lot of that came from being the only girl in the team as well. And the comments that we kind of didn't touch on earlier, but you got those comments of, you know, you're a girl in a boy's team, they must be short or whatever. So I think subconsciously I was, I was trying to prove people wrong, but in a really positive way. Cause I just thought, you know what, if I'm good at cricket, they'll see that and they've got the opportunity now to see me ball. So, you know, basically shove, a, shove your finger up to them. Um, so I think that kind of all had to get unpicked when I had that breakdown in 2016. And it was something that, you know, I couldn't, I genuinely couldn't believe that when the psych sat down, he said, he gave the old cliche, all right, what was your childhood like? I was like, no, we're not talking about this. I said, I had a great childhood. I've had so much love, so much support. I've got an amazing family. We don't need to touch on that. And he said, hang on a minute we're going to touch on it. And then half an hour later, I'm in tears again, thinking I didn't know I was under so much pressure as being that 12, 13 year old. And I remember making my England debut and the programs that you get where you get your little profile photo and it says, you know, Kate Cross, Lancashire, wherever it is. The first line of mine was ex West Ham footballer, David Cross's daughter, his first England squad or whatever it was. But you know, it was my dad that got mentioned before me. And I just thought, 
A, it's really, really easy journalism. Like, come on, guys, work yeah. a bit harder. Or, like, mention it at the end or whatever. But my dad loved it because his career had, like, a resurgence when I started playing cricket for England. He loved it. He got on Twitter and everything. <laughs> oh, my word. I honestly can't believe it. Well, honestly, I, what the way that you do talk about mental health is, I know that you're not going to enjoy me saying it, but it is inspiring. And but also, I hope, as you say as well, therapeutic for you to continue to talk about it, to understand the journey that you have been on. And like, uh, you know, every time that you can probably reflect on it now, you're comfortable talking to me about it. Yeah. And, you know, n- now knowing it's going into the public domain again and again, and it's, it's a nice feeling, I hope, for you to be able yeah. to talk about it. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I've never had any kind of like poor feedback. for. I think I've had like in the maybe... 40 interviews I've done about my mental health I've maybe had four you know bad comments so I think the ratio of those comments that I get where people saying like I can't believe that someone else is going through this or I can relate to that so much or you know you seemingly have such an amazing life but you still feel like that and it's helped me and I just think it's so worth talking about your mental health it's just it's just the biggest bit of advice that I can give to anyone that my mental health journey changed that day that I spoke to my mum that I was willing to open up to her. Um, and it, I think that the big thing is that you find someone you can trust to talk to about it because you don't want it to fall on deaf ears. You know, you don't want, you don't want someone to not take you seriously because of what you're saying. But um, yeah, I just think I can't shout enough about shouting about it. And I, I've probably people get bored of me of hearing me say it, but you've just got to be willing to be open and, and talk to people, whether that's your GP, whoever it is, but just keep talking about how you're feeling because it's so important, especially at the minute where we're going through such a rogue time of life. Just, yeah, just keep talking. I couldn't agree more. Talking during this kind of experience that we're all going through is more important than any other time. How did you find the... Uh, lockdown then how did you find the experiences of what this pandemic has brought on us particularly from a kind of the fact that your life stopped you returned to cricket but then your life had to stop again because there was nothing going on how did you find that lack of structure oh the structure was the thing that I really really struggled with and I think like everyone talks about that when you finish playing cricket or sport whatever sport you do play when you stop professionally that structure gets literally stripped from you you know where people tell you what to wear every day where to be what you're doing to then basically you're making all your own decisions it's so difficult and that was something that I found really helped when I put a bit more structure into my days and it was like really really menial tasks but it might have been like walk the dog or cook tea or do the podcast or whatever it was that day but I just had something in that really helped me and I think I work better with a bit of structure anyway um but yeah I was I think I was just similar to everyone else you know I was just it was the unknown for me that was the scariest part that I didn't know when I was going back to cricket I didn't know when I was going to be safe again I didn't know when my family was safe um so yeah I think I probably experienced lockdown like a lot of people did um and again I went back to my mum and dad so I went back to that comfort of having my family around me and being able to make sure that they were okay um but yeah it was just a really difficult time wasn't it and we just had to adapt as we went um and, but I do think for me, it was as, as tough as lockdown was. It also gave me an opportunity to see my family for 16 weeks, which, you know, I've not had that opportunity since I was probably living back at home at school. So it, it, in a way, it was kind of really lovely that I got to spend so much more time with them and they were OK as well. And I wasn't worried about them on the other side of the world or whatever. It was it was actually quite nice. From a cricket perspective, the re- the kind of the recovery of the cricket world I would certainly argue was led by the ECB who did a fantastic job globally leading from the front. However, I would also argue in the same breath though, that women's cricket fell by the wayside slightly as well in terms of getting it back up to speed. Did you find that frustrating? Yeah, of course it was frustrating not playing cricket, but I think that I I can't like, I can't speak highly enough of the ECB in that time. And Obviously, we didn't get as much cricket as the men. That was, you know, that was clear to see. But it wasn't through lack of trying. You know, we had a try series that was set up to play against South Africa and India, and that got cancelled at the last minute. Then our World Cup got postponed. And then in the middle of a global pandemic where everyone was losing jobs, they still contracted 40 new female girls, female cricketers, female girls. Yeah, so to be able to do that at a time where there was the 
rumour going around that they could have lost £380 million in a calendar year, they still kind of had that statement of we're going to support the women's t- the women's game. We're going to do what we said we were going to do. We're going to still contract these domestic players. And they did it. And then we did get cricket on. You know, right at the last minute, they managed to get that international series against the West Indies. And it was a fair play to the West Indies for coming over because I don't know how I would have felt having to travel at that time of so much uncertainty. Um, but yeah, it was it was certainly not through lack of trying that we didn't get as much cricket. Mm. Now on the and on on the talk of success though as well, you're going to be kicking off the hundred, which is also immensely epic. How important is that platform now as well in terms of expression for the game of cricket, but indeed just in the bigger picture, in the bigger light of sport, but in life in general? Yeah, it's again because we're so like engulfed in cricket so much, it can sometimes get lost, and you sometimes think, right, it's just going to be another game of cricket, but. I genuinely think we'll look back on this phase of women's cricket and the 100 will be a real pinnacle of that. And again, I know it's really easy for me to say that as a player and everyone's talking so much about how they don't want the 100 and how they're opposing it. But I just can't stress enough how big a tournament it's going to be for the women. Mm. And it's it's created so much more... It's going to... Well, there's more money in the game for the girls now. You know, there's already those 40 girls that are contracted that are training professionally now. But there's also going to be another eight teams worth of girls who are getting paid to play cricket and that is massive for us and so when I see people on Twitter going cancel the 100 it's a waste of time I just I just wish I could say to every one of them just why not you just think about the actual repercussions of this tournament being cancelled at the end of the day it's 20 less deliveries than you would see in a 2020 game 20 and yet everyone's kicking up this massive fuss about how we're changing the game and how it's all you know the formats changed drastically it's still a game of cricket. It's still whoever scores the most runs wins. And that is what people love about cricket. You know, it go, a five-day test match can go down to the final ball. So the length of the game doesn't matter. But I just, I just wish people would take the women's side of it into consideration a bit more because it's given us a platform to, for the first time in ECB's history. They are starting the women on a level playing field to the men. And that is absolutely mega. And, I, yeah, I just wish that I could like, ring these people up and say please think about what you're tweeting before you say it because that that's someone's mortgage that they might not be able to play if they don't play, you know, if that tournament doesn't go ahead. So, so yeah, it's, it is going to be massive for us. And sorry for the rant. <laughs> no, no, not, not the rant at all. I mean, that is the unfortunate shallow mindedness of Twitter trolls, hmm. I would argue. But nonetheless, I'm immensely excited for it. And I know that the majority of the world and indeed the cricketing community are excited for the hundred. I'm, yeah, as I say, immensely excited. And I wish you all the best of luck. Um, thank you so much for coming on. But I have one final question that I ask every guest that comes on. What does the word headstrong mean to you? Uh, wow, good question. Um, I think for me, it just is an awareness of your own mental ability, I guess. Uh, no, ability is the wrong word. I think it's my awareness of me mentally. And like I said, my mental health journey is has been just that it's been a journey um and it changes and it's dynamic and I've got to I've got to kind of go with it and learn as I go so I think the more that I understand about myself and about mental health the more I'm able to help other people as well um so I think being headstrong is it's a real skill actually and I think it's something that you've got to put time into and I'll say it again but just keep talking to people keep being open keep talking to people Really nice. I really agree with that as well. Kate, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best of luck this summer. And yeah, let's let's see lots of runs, lots of wickets and success. More nice. cricket. That's all we want. Nice. Thank you. I'm taking it you're a Manchester Originals fan now then. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you don't sound like you're from Manchester. <laughs> we are supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation with Headstrong and Innings With. Sir Andrew Strauss lost his wife to non-smoking lung cancer in 2018. Just before her death, Ruth and Andrew discussed the idea of setting up a foundation to help other families who would be facing a similar ordeal. The Ruth Strauss Foundation wants to ensure that all families with dependent children facing the death of a parent are offered emotional support and guidance to prepare for the future, allowing them to make the most of their time together. In tandem, they are driving the need for more research and collaboration in the fight against non-smoking lung cancers, which are on the rise and to which Ruth ultimately lost her life. 
You can support their cause by making a donation today. To donate, text RSF10 to 70191 to donate £10. Or you can donate online at virginmoneygiving.com forward slash fund forward slash headstrong forward slash RSF. Thank you for all your support of Headstrong and the Ruth Strauss Foundation. And that's it for this episode of Headstrong. A huge thank you to Kate Cross for joining me on this episode. I really appreciate her insight and honesty when it comes to talking about mental health. I wish her the best of luck for the rest of the season. Now, if you have only listened to this episode, don't worry. There's plenty more cricketers that I've already spoken to and still a few more episodes left this series. So if you fancy listening to some more, hit subscribe or scroll back through the catalogue. If you have enjoyed the podcast as well, please do leave a rating and a review. Every, every little bit helps. Until next time then, I will see you next week for another episode of Headstrong. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.